Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Romans chapter 1? I'd like to read a portion from the middle of chapter 1, starting in verse 14. The Apostle Paul wrote this, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Our glorious God who is, my prayer this morning is simple. As we set out on this first of many weeks of study of this majestic book that you have given to us, May your glory, your gospel, and in particular, your righteousness be more evident to us than ever before. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who may not be aware of the awesomeness of your righteousness and their need of a Savior. Father, I pray for those of us who are Christians, that we would understand the terror and the hope and the transformational power of your righteousness as displayed in the gospel. So be with us by your Spirit. Leave none of us unchanged and unmoved. Reveal yourself to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is God righteous? Is the God who is, the living God, the glorious one, the eternal God, the perfect and holy God, the God who created you, the God who sustains you, the God who opened the eyes of Elisha's servant to see all of the chariots of fire, is that God righteous? It's probably a question we have all asked. Maybe not at the theological and theoretical level, but certainly at the practical level. If you've read the Bible more than once, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been in good evangelical, conservative, teaching churches, you probably know better than to even doubt the righteousness of God at a theological level. Of course He's righteous. He's the righteous one. It's on page after page of the Scripture. He is right in all that He does. And it's one of those hills we would die on theologically. God is righteous. He never does anything wrong. But at the practical, experiential level, do you sometimes at least question how his righteousness is intact in light of this or that? Do you at least dance around the question a little bit in your heart of hearts? When a hurricane sweeps through and devastates millions of homes and kills over 110? When a tsunami floods massive regions, when a fire comes across the horizon consuming homes, when a child dies, when you see the piles of people affected by disease, when you look at 
political situations and economic situations and personal situations, do you sometimes step back and say, this is really hard to figure out how a righteous God and these evils coexist? If you at least ask the question, you're in pretty good company. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk cried out, How long, O Lord, are you going to stand idly by and watch the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? I know, God, that you can't look with favor upon the wicked, and yet it seems like everything these evil people are doing turns to gold. And your people are suffering. How long are you going to stand there and not respond? Or King David, time and time again through the Psalms, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to let these wicked dogs, these enemies of your people, these enemies of me, your king, these enemies of you, how long are you going to wait and let me suffer and let us suffer at the hands of these pagans? And then there's Job. You know, God himself says that Job never crossed the line into sin. But his toes were on the line, all ten of them. Scratching his head and saying, God, as I look at my life, I've not sinned grievous sin. I've made a covenant with my eyes to keep them pure. I've served you faithfully. I don't understand why you've brought this devastation and destruction upon me. He never officially, formally said, you're unrighteous for what you've done, but you just have to think there were times he thought, it's close. How do I reconcile my circumstances with a righteous God? How about you? You ever get your toes on the line? Think, Lord, I know you're righteous. I know you do all things that are right. I know you're good behind this, but but help me see your righteousness in this circumstance. Today we begin our study of the book of Romans. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. It's a wonderful work. And there are so many things that we're going to see in this this letter. So many wonderful things. This letter unpacks the details of the gospel unlike any other book in the Bible. And the glory and the majesty and the sovereignty and the power of God are evident throughout. I've studied this book more than any other book of the Bible. I've taught it more than I've taught any other book. And the more I study, and the more I read, and the more I teach, and the more I ponder, it seems to me that the primary theme, the major issue on the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul throughout this book can be boiled down to a statement on the righteousness of God. If I were writing a book on Romans, I would call it God's Righteousness Revealed. And I believe there are two major themes about God's righteousness woven throughout this this epistle. And I'm going to try to set the stage for you by taking those two themes and introducing them in the form of two questions. The first question is this. If God is righteous, Why did he reject the Jews and receive the Gentiles? Here it is again. If God is righteous, why did he reject the Jews and receive the Gentiles? You have to know that that is a major theme if you're going to understand Paul's teaching in the book of Romans. Now here we are, we're in the 21st century. We are thousands of years removed from the initial writing of this book, and that question was really significant for them. And you may be thinking, why is that so significant for us? We're a bunch of Gentiles. What difference does it make 
about the Jews. But it is important. It was important for Paul's original audience. If you read this book, and if you start at the beginning, Genesis 1-1, and you begin to work your way through, let's see, this is November 4th, you should be well through your year in a Bible reading program, right? That you started in January? Everybody's still, still doing that, right? Well, when you started way back in January and you read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and so on and so on, you find that the vast majority of the Old Testament, starting with the very second book of Exodus through the end of the Old Testament, it's entirely or almost entirely consumed with God's relationship to Israel. That's what the story is, Right? God making his covenant with the Jews and the outworking of that covenant with the Jews. But then, after God has made great expressions of love and affection to the Jews, after he's built them a great kingdom, after he's poured out tremendous blessing upon them, then come to the New Testament and he sends the Messiah to the Jews, the King, the Deliverer. The promised one, the one for whom all of Israel had been looking for generations, he finally comes, and what we see is the Jews clamoring for his execution, his death, even death on a cross. Why is that? How does that play out? How does that fit the story? Well, Jesus tells us how. They rejected the Messiah because God had rejected them because they had rejected Him. Did you follow that? God chooses Israel to be His special people. They choose idolatry. God punishes Israel by hardening their hearts to the Messiah so they wouldn't respond and receive Him. That's judgment for their idolatry. And that all makes sense. We see how that plays out. Except when we read all of the promises, all through the prophets, Even prior to the prophets, all the promises God made to Israel of restoration, of forgiveness, of the kingdom. And we say, how does this all work out? We know God's judgment fell upon them. Let me just read to you for a moment Jesus' own words to the Jews. He's speaking to his disciples, and he's been telling them parables. And the disciples came to him. This is Matthew 13. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Here's what we expect Jesus to say in response. Guys, don't you know what a parable is? A parable is a story that's used to illustrate. I'm the master storyteller. So he tells the story, right, of the four seeds where he throws out seed over here and, and it falls on stony ground, the birds come and pick it up and they throws out seed over here and throw the seed over here and he explains what all that means. Look, the, the, the ones that the devil comes and takes away, they hear the gospel but they don't ever respond because the enemy pre- prevents it. Then there's this other seed and, and there's some life that springs up but it's not true lasting life. There's more seed, they get choked out, this, this, this vine grows up and it gets choked out by all the worries of the world. It's the, it's the final group on, that fell on good soil that grows up and produces the food, uh, fruit. Those are the true believers, those are true Christians. It's a great story, a great illustration for preaching the gospel and people's response. And you expect Jesus to say, I'm telling them parables because I'm trying to capture with a word picture how this whole thing works. That's not what he says. Why do, we, why do I speak to them in parables? Jesus says this. To you, disciples, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. To the Jews... To God's chosen people, to his covenant people, it has not been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. For whoever has, that's you disciples, to him shall more be given, but, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. So, therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says... 
You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. From the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand and return, and I would heal them. Those are hard words from Jesus himself. He says, the reason they don't understand who I am and what I'm doing is because God has hardened them. He has blinded their eyes in judgment so they will not repent and receive my forgiveness. That's a hard word. And that makes sense to us at some level, except for all the promises. He's going to restore them. He's going to forgive them. He's going to bring them back into the land. They're going to triumph and rule over, and all the nations of the earth are going to rush to Mount Zion where Jerusalem sits and reigns, where where the Messiah sits and reigns. How do we make sense of all that? How is God righteous if He rejects the Jews and receives the Gentiles? That question permeates the book of Romans. And if you don't know he's addressing that question, you'll miss so much of what Paul is getting at. Now, this is probably a good place to describe the origin of the church in Rome. We don't know who started the church there. It probably wasn't Peter. He wasn't the first pope. Because there was no first pope. Well, there was, but anyway, you know what I mean. We don't know exactly how it started. One ancient document says about the church in Rome that it was started without the advantage of great miracles or influence from the apostles. Here's the best case scenario as I understand it. Here's what makes most sense to me. Do you remember on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles in the upper room. Peter comes down, and they all start preaching the gospel. And if you remember, there were Jews gathered in Jerusalem from all over the empire for Passover and for Pentecost. And so Peter is preaching the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, and all of these people are hearing the gospel in their own language from wherever they came. Well, then they went home. And those who didn't return right away, when Saul of Tarsus came down and started persecuting him, then they all fled and ran off. And some of those believers, some of those Jews who came to Christ on Pentecost, I believe, went back to their home city of Rome. And when the Christians went back to Rome, they built a church. The church in Rome was primarily Jewish at its origin, if this theory is correct. Then they started reaching out to other Jews, but also to Gentiles, and some of the God-fearing Gentiles started coming, and they started hearing about Messiah, hearing about Jesus, and they came to Christ. And this was fine, except the Jews that would not convert didn't like the Jews who did convert, and they began to fight. They began to argue. Great hostility grew up, and finally, in A.D. 49, the Claudius, uh, the, the emperor Claudius had had enough of this, and he expelled all Jews from Rome. That's not theory, that's fact. We know that's true from history. He sent them all away. He didn't make any distinction between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish, non-Christians, between Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews. He just said, all of you Jews out of here, stop your fighting, go somewhere else. So if all the Jews are, uh, are sent away from Rome, who does that leave in the, in the Roman church? Gentiles, converted Gentiles. And as they began to preach the gospel, they weren't converting Jews because all the Jews were gone. So the people that come into the church are Gentiles. And now the makeup of the church in Rome is primarily Gentile. Well, eventually, the Jews get to go back to Rome. So some of them return who were there before, and they come into church, and they say, wait a minute. Where's the law preaching going on? Where's the Old Testament, the law of Moses, that must be held if we're going to Please God. See, the the Acts 15 Council of Jerusalem took a while to spread. They didn't have the internet back then because Al Gore hadn't been alive yet. Anyway, um, and, and so now there's this fighting. There's this debating going on within the Roman church where converted Jews are trying to bring Old Testament things in and the Gentiles are saying, we don't have anything to do with that. 
That's, that's the old covenant. That's the law of Moses. That's not our law. And there's this discussion, debate, arguing going on back and forth. And Paul has to address that throughout this book and set them straight on how the law applies, what its purpose was, and how they should respond to it. And we will see that over and over again in the book of Romans. We'll see Paul addressing specifically Jewish things and law things with this church in Rome. To me, that makes the most sense for the origin of the church. This matters to us for at least two reasons. At least it should matter to us for these two reasons. This relationship between Jews and Gentiles, the law and the old covenant with the new covenant, this matters to us because it impacts how we understand the Bible to fit together. What is the story of the Bible? How, when we transfer or we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, what continues on? What is the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, between the law and the gospel, between the Old Testament and New Testament, between the Old Testament people and the New Testament people and all that? How do we put all that together? Well, th this question, if God is righteous, how can he reject the Jews and receive the Gentiles, matters because it impacts what we understand the Bible to be teaching in the New Testament. Here's the second reason. And if that doesn't matter to you, if you just say, well, I'm just going to take it at face value and study the New Testament, this should matter to you. There is no doubt God made great promises to Israel in the Old Testament. Did he keep them? If he didn't, why would you trust him when he makes promises to you in the New Testament? Is God's integrity on the line? Is he really righteous if he rejects the people to whom he made all those promises? If we can't trust him for those, what if he changes his mind on judgment day? Yeah, I said if you believed in Jesus, I'd forgive you, but you know what? I'm in a bad mood today. I changed my mind. Nah, that's just too nice. I'm going to be mean today. Forget those promises. I'm going a different direction you are held accountable for your own sin. If God doesn't keep his promises to the Jews, how can we trust him to keep his promises to the church? That's a crucial question. And it's part of Paul's discussion in this great book, which we will see as we go through it. So the first question that we need to keep at the forefront of our mind as we study this book is, Put it back up one more time, Nicole. If God is righteous, why did he reject the Jews and receive the Gentiles? You read through the book of Romans this week with that question in mind, it'll unlock some things for you. At least you'll see the question there behind his teaching. But then there's a second question. This one's more pertinent to every single person in this room. It's the question that I'm putting in this phrasing, if God is righteous, how can sinners escape the wrath of God? If God is righteous, how can you and I who are sinners escape his wrath? You know, when, when bad things happen to, quote, good people, cynics, skeptics, all those who say they don't believe in God, they come out with their questions, right? Right? How can a good God allow this to happen? Have you ever had a skeptic ask this question? Have you ever had an unbeliever come to you and say, I don't understand this, this God you believe in. If he's righteous, how can sinners escape his wrath? Nobody cares about this question today. Because as a culture, we have done away with the wrath of God. If there is a God, he loves all of us. He's a great big grandfatherly type that just wants to set us all on his knees and bless us and pour out his gifts to us. But his righteousness no longer strikes terror in the hearts of people. One reason I'm convinced that's true is because his righteousness rarely strikes terror in the hearts of Christians. That's not the case with Paul. Paul was an expert on Old Testament law. Paul was an expert on sin and righteousness and the consequences of a sinner standing before a holy God. 
He was well-trained, well-educated, four PhDs in Mosaic law. He knew the Old Covenant. He knew the ramifications of committing even one sin, breaking even one command of God's relentless law. He tried with everything in his being to keep the law. He wrote on one occasion, before the law, I was blameless. That's not gloating. But he understood the consequences and he spent his life trying to keep it because he knew if he didn't, he would be condemned. Now, he came to understand that he wasn't quite as blameless as he thought. And that opened the door for him to understand the gospel. But he understood this is nothing to be trifled with, God's righteous standard. It's unbending. It's unrelenting. He knows the Old Testament. He knows Exodus 19 and 20. He knows Deuteronomy 28, that if you do not keep all of my commandments, I will destroy you, God said. And if you get that, if you understand that a just judge must condemn sinners must condemn those who break the law. If you get that, then the question comes to mind, well, if God is righteous, how can sinners escape His wrath? Isn't it unrighteous for God who knows our deeds and knows our actions, isn't it unrighteous of Him to look at our lives and say, you're not guilty? You're righteous in my sight? We would never let judges get away with that in our day. If a judge developed this pattern of exonerating those who are guilty, we'd run him out of town. He's an unjust judge. He's not righteous. He's not doing what judges should do. The judge of all the universe, the most high, most holy God, when he examines sinners and he says, not guilty, how can he be righteous and do that? In chapter 3 of Romans, Paul addresses this question majestically. It's the center of the gospel, the center of the New Testament, one theologian says. It's the heart of everything, how a righteous God can maintain his righteous integrity and yet sinners be forgiven. It's the cross where God punishes sin, He is just. Because our sins, the sins of those who believe the gospel, are transferred to the account of Jesus and God justly punishes our sin in Him. But then He can turn and declare us righteous because His perfect deeds are transferred to our account and God sees them on our record and says, you're not guilty. A righteous God can be righteous and still forgive sinners if there's a righteous substitute who takes the place of the sinner. And that's what happened. Justification by faith alone and substitutionary atonement are at the heart of the gospel. And Paul gets into that in Romans 3, unlike any other portion of Scripture. God is righteous, and sinners escape His wrath. That's the glory of this New Testament, this new covenant, this gospel that Paul speaks of throughout Romans. God's righteousness revealed in the book of Romans. There's a third issue of righteousness in this book. It's not uh, prevalent enough for my mind to call it a theme, or at least not a major theme, but it's not insignificant. It is very important. It's the concept of what God does to believers in transforming us to become righteous. God the Holy Spirit is at work taking believers from this place where we were enslaved to sin, and now we become, he says, slaves of righteousness for the glory of God. We will see that through this book as well. So here's what we're going to do the rest of our time this morning. 
I'm going to take you on a little journey through the book of Romans. I said in the bulletin we would cover chapters 1 through 3. No, we're going to chapters 1 through 14. And we'll still be out by dinner time. Yeah, it is if you count dinner as supper. I want to draw your attention to some of the places through this book that the word righteousness appears and help you catch this theme. Because again, the more I study, the more I think this really is the heart of the book of Romans. So here's the first one, verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, we're going to get there in a couple of weeks, but let that soak in. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in that gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. Now, here's a little teaser, a little, little study for you to do before we get there. When he says the righteousness of God, what does he mean? Does he mean the righteousness given to us when he declares us righteous when we believe? Or is he talking about God's righteousness in condemning sinners? Which is it? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What's he talking about there? Look at it. Study it. We'll come back to it a little further down the road. The next verse tells us why this righteousness is so important. For the wrath of God is revealed. So in verse 17, it's the righteousness of God is revealed. In verse 18, it's the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I take it it's not working? The CG? I did. Well, I meant to. Do you have the next one, 2-5? Okay, good. Chapter 2, verse 5. In this context, I'm trying to keep your eyes up here so you don't have to keep looking down there, but you can look down there if you want to. In this section of Romans, chapters 1 through 3, Paul is building the case that you and I are evil. Shouldn't take it that long to build the case, should it? And that if you and I stand before God in our own righteousness, in our own works, our only expectation is condemnation. It's in that context that he says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Because God is righteous, He will judge. And that day will be a day of wrath for anyone who is unrighteous. Verse 5 of chapter 3 says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? This is a question that people will ask in our day. That's not fair of God to pour out His wrath on people. God should understand how hard it is. God should be gracious. Have you ever had anybody illustrate or express the concept God should be gracious? Do you realize that's a contradiction in terms? You can't put the word should with grace. By definition, grace is not should. It's only a gift. What Paul here is asking is, our sin, our unrighteousness, gives God the opportunity to pour out his wrath, his righteous wrath. And the God who inflicts wrath, is he unrighteous by doing that? Absolutely not. He's not unrighteous. He's righteous. He's just. He is perfectly fair. Every sinner, every sinner who receives condemnation from the throne of God is being treated fairly by God. Let that sink in and your life will be changed forever. Every sinner who receives eternal condemnation for his sin is being treated absolutely fairly by God. Thankfully, he can also treat us non-fairly so that we can be forgiven. 
Chapter 3, verse 10 boils it all down to this statement, there is none righteous, not even one. You, teenager, are not the lone exception. There is not even one person who is righteous by God's standard. That's a heavy indictment. Our culture says we're basically good. We're not basically good. There's not even one person who's basically good. We're all unrighteous. So before God's standard, if you're a Jew, the standard is his revealed law in the Old Testament. If you're a Gentile, it is his law revealed through conscience. Either way, by his standard, we are all condemned in his sight. And then chapter 3, verse 21 comes in, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith, there's that phrase again, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Just ponder already that phrase, apart from the law. There is a way to be right with God, to be righteous before God, apart from His law. If you've understood anything of what I've been saying so far, that is really, really good news. Because before the law, there's none righteous, not even one. But apart from the law now, there's a way to be righteous. Verse 25 says, speaking of Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. There's that word again. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier the one who has faith in Christ. He's righteous in condemning sin and he's righteous in forgiving sinners because of the cross. It's all through faith. Romans 4.3, speaking of Abraham, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You don't get righteous by obeying, you get righteous by believing. Chapter 5, verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, speaking of Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. We're all condemned in Adam. We are made right before God because of Christ. Death by Adam, life by Jesus. And this righteousness is a gift. Chapter 6, verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You're a different person than you were. The Spirit of God indwells you now. Sin and the law and devastation and condemnation used to master you, but now you've been freed from that, and Jesus is your master. Righteousness is your master. Serve your master. You can be righteous. You can be more and more day in and day out like Jesus by the Spirit of God. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. This should matter to us, Paul says. Chapter 7, verse 12 speaking to the Jews in the congregation. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He will go on to explain how there was nothing wrong with the old covenant law. It's God's law. God's righteous. Therefore, His law is righteous. It's not wrong. The problem with the law is nobody could keep it. And its only verdict for those under it was guilty, 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 
guilty. He's saying to the Jews in the congregation, you need to listen to this very carefully. If you try to bring these Gentiles under the law, realize you're bringing them under condemnation because the law kills. And by the Spirit of God, we've been released from the law and now walk in righteousness by the Spirit. So he goes on in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they attained righteousness. Even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Chapter 10, verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they, the Jews, did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God through faith. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you see how lying behind this is the question, how do the Jews fit into this? Has God rejected the Jews? If so, how can, it be, how can God be righteous in that setting? He's going to build the case that the end of the law, the goal of the law, the trajectory toward which the law pointed was Jesus. And now that the Lord is here, now that Christ has come, righteousness is through faith and only through faith in Him. You can't keep the law. Don't put people under the law. It's done. The Jews who thought they were keeping the law were condemned by it. Then it gets personal to you and me in verses, uh, chapter 10, verse 10. With the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. We are declared righteous through our faith in the gospel. And finally, chapter 14, verse 17. I love this verse. What is the kingdom of God? What are we trying to build here in Colorado Springs? What are we trying to build across the world? What is Jesus Christ himself building? Is it some temporal kingdom in a literal Jerusalem? What does Paul say here? This is the kingdom of God. It's not eating and drinking. It's righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't know of anything else that would better describe what the church should be, what we are trying to build, this kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit of God. And that's where he goes through this book. Well, there's a little foretaste of where we're going for the next weeks, months. Read it. Drink deeply from this well. Do you know how many influential people in the history of the church have been upended by this book? The year 386, a man who was living a very licentious, sinful lifestyle was outside and he heard a bunch of children singing this, this nursery rhyme kind of song, Toli Lege, Toli Lege, take up and read. And he decided that was God himself speaking to him and he opened up the Bible to wherever it would fall and he opened to a chapter toward the end of Romans where Paul said, no longer make provision for the lusts of the flesh. And the man we know as St. Augustine or St. Augustine began to pour over this book and his life was transformed. And don't get me wrong, Augustine had a lot of wacky theology. I don't recommend you read all of this stuff and implement his views on everything. But he understood some things about the gospel that hadn't been noticed since Paul's day. And he wrote about it. And a millennium or so later, an Augustinian monk 
in the Roman Catholic religion was studying Augustine's writings on the first chapter of Romans on justification by faith of the righteousness of God. And he came to understand, and in his words he said, when I grasped that the righteousness God was speaking of here was not simply his righteousness in pouring out wrath and condemning sinners, but the righteousness he gives to the believer by faith. Martin Luther said the gates of paradise swung open and I walked through. And he went on to rescue the church, to rescue the gospel from what he called Babylonian captivity by which the Roman Catholic religion had wrongly taught the truths of Scripture for over a millennium. And the gospel was re kindled the gospel of justification by faith alone. And the Reformation, the reason we sit here today as Protestants and not Muslims, if you know your church history, is because by God's grace and providence, Martin Luther saw the book of Romans for what it is and found the gospel. And that doesn't even get at John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, and a host of other major trees in the forest of Christian history whose lives have been turned upside down because of this one book. And as their lives were turned upside down, their churches were turned upside down, and those who read their writings were turned upside down, and all of culture was transformed and turned upside down because of the dramatic and profound teaching of this book. And it's been my prayer, and it will be my prayer, that such an upending occurs at Front Range Alliance Church and in Colorado Springs. As we sink our roots more deeply in this book. It's my prayer that our tree grows and covers this city and that fruit falls all across the world because of what is contained here. I urge you, read it, study it, talk about it, pray through it, mine it for all it's worth, and let's see if the Lord would do something here in this place like he's done in other places throughout church history. And this fits so perfectly with, with what we're wrestling with, what we're thinking about with our vision to fill the city. It's the gospel. It's God's righteousness revealed. It's the heart of everything God is doing and has done through Jesus right here in one 16-chapter book. Let's see what the Lord will do and how he will use it in transforming us and our city and our nation and our world. I ask you again, will you read it? Will you study it? Will you know it and know Jesus Christ through it? Let's pray. Father, in your grace and mercy, you have left us this letter that is so rich. It covers so many things that we need to know and need to hear and need to understand and need to teach our children and unbelievers, teach the world. It's a glorious book. Father, some of us are very, very, very familiar with this content. We've probably memorized big portions of it and could quote, at least paraphrase big portions. Father, don't let the familiarity blind us to its glory. Change us by it. Teach us afresh the gospel and the righteousness, your righteousness that is revealed in Christ and through faith. Transform us into righteousness that is worthy of the name of Christ. Father, how fitting it is that this introduction comes on the day that we partake of the Lord's Supper, where the death of our Savior and your justice and our justification are so vividly portrayed 
in the bread and the cup. Father, I would ask once again that anyone in this room who is here, maybe they've been in this church for years, maybe it's their first time, maybe they've been in some other church for years, maybe they do not understand your righteousness and their desperate need for righteousness because of their own unrighteousness. Today, would you remove the blinders? Would you show them the glory of Christ and draw them to faith? Maybe there's a, a child, maybe there's a teenager Maybe there's an adult woman or man who knows, whose conscience, whose heart is pricked with guilt, weighed down. They know they're living a life of deceit, a life of sin and wickedness. They know that if today they were to stand before you, you would not declare them righteous in Christ. You would declare them guilty and your righteous wrath would be theirs. Father, if that is true, would you show your grace and mercy in the gospel to them? And Father, for those of us who believe the gospel, who are pursuing righteousness because of the gospel, who love Jesus, remind us again of the wrath that should have been ours, that we are not the exception to the non-righteous rule, except that by your Spirit and by your work on the cross. We have been declared righteous and you are making us righteous and someday we will be completely and utterly and totally without sin and dwell in your presence as righteous ones forever. Fill our hearts with that awesome truth again and may we partake of the, the bread and the juice in remembering the glory of Christ and loving you all the more because your righteousness has been revealed. Lord, do these things and more today and in the upcoming days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Men, would you come and let us serve our brothers and sisters, music team.